The scripture comes from Second uh, Samuel, the 18th chapter, uh, verses 31 to 33, going into Second Samuel, nineteenth uh, chapter, verse one through eight, and. David's army has just returned from a great victory over the enemies of God. And starting with verse 31, it says, And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, Would I had died instead of you? O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who were ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom was alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, rise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not at a man shall stay at your side with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, The king is coming in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. May God add a blessing to his word and to the young man who's going to come and expound on it. Amen. Well, I'm back. Thanks again for having me. Uh, Thank you for the reading. That was wonderful. Uh, Please join me in prayer as we pray for our time together in 2 Samuel. 
Our Lord and our God, you promise us that your word does not return void. Your word is power and truth. We pray this morning that you would apply it to our hearts and to our minds, that we might grow in our love for you, or even come to love you for the first time. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. We're going to be in 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 18. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 19, though, so if you've got your Bible, you can turn there, you can follow along in the bulletin. Um, I'm sure you've all had that experience, I know I have, where you're reading a passage of Scripture, and you read it, and you finish, and you just kind of sit there, and you scratch your head, maybe give one of these, and you just think to yourself, what in the world just happened? Why is that even here? You have no clue what it means or why it's even in the Bible. We all understand the story of Moses or David, why the stories of Jesus are in there. But when it comes to more obscure sections, genealogies, the entire book of Revelation, or certain laws banning polycotton blend clothing, we just don't really know why it's there, even what to do it. And I'm going to confess to you this morning, when I got to this passage, actually when I was assigned it in seminary, I had that exact same reaction. It seems completely useless from a narrative standpoint. If you were to look back at a little bit in chapter 18 to verse 17, it says, let me find it, and they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his home. And then you skip to the very end of our passage in 19.9, or 19.8, and Israel had fled every man to his own home. Those verses are saying the exact same thing. There are two big parentheses around our entire section that you could really pick up and move out of the story, and you wouldn't lose anything. This is really an aside, almost, kind of a rabbit trail that the author runs down. And it kind of makes David look bad when you think about it. The author could have completely skipped it, and yet it's in there. So we have to ask ourselves, why is it here, and what are we going to do with it? And I think it's in the Bible exactly for a time like ours. Doesn't the culture just feel kind of harsh and frigid towards Christians now? I mean, major denominations are shrinking at incredible paces or incredible pace. Universities and academics will tell the world that Christians, people who believe in the Bible, intellectually, they don't have a clue. More and more, the culture is becoming godless. Moral decline and decay. Pornography is a $10 billion a year business. And those of us who believe in Christianity, we're labeled now as racists, bigots, fundamentalist, anti-intellectual, and a host of other bad names that you can think of with some sort of bad connotation. But passages like ours this morning show us that God keeps His promise to His people 
and that He is always going to preserve His people because God has promised and will bring it to fruition. So we're going to look at 2 Samuel mostly in chapter 19, but we're parachuting kind of into the middle of a story. So we're going to have to do a little bit of background before we dive in. So I'm going to give a real quick overview of David. I know Charles touched on David a few weeks ago, but way back in 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed king. He killed Goliath in chapter 17 and then went on the run from King Saul. After Saul was eventually killed, David was made king at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Everything was going great until you get to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And that's where David commits adultery with Bathsheba. As a result of that one episode, God tells David, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And then after that, we see sin ravage and destroy David's house. David's eldest son, Amnon, the one that everyone assumed would take over the kingdom, Charles covered this section a few weeks ago, I believe. He rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and then Absalom his half-brother kills Amnon, and then Absalom flees the kingdom. After years in exile, Absalom returns to Jerusalem, and eventually it gets enough followers that he tries to overthrow David, and David has fled Jerusalem for his life. And the climactic battle between David and his son Absalom has just taken place, and Joab, David's general, has just killed Absalom against David's wishes. So that's kind of the background that gets us to where we're, where we're at. Uh, and so having seen this background, let's just dive in and take a look at how God is actually preserving his kingdom. And if this were a series instead of just a one sermon that we're jumping in, uh, I hope you would be asking, well, Absalom died. Last week he would have died. How is God still preserving his kingdom now? And didn't he do that when Joab kind of ran the spear through Absalom? And the answer is that yes and no. Absalom is dead, but there's a threat that remains to David's kingdom, and that threat is David himself. His son is dead, but it's also his enemy and the enemy of the kingdom of God. And David cries for Absalom. It's not crying like we're accustomed to here in America. We're pretty reserved criers for the most part, but not David. In 1833, he says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Whenever you see repetition anywhere in the Bible. That's just throwing emphasis on those words. David is greatly grieved by the death of his son. It says he's deeply moved, and that word actually means he was trembling. 
David was physically affected by the death of Absalom, his son. And this is more than just a few tears running down his cheeks. And we don't usually see grief like this anymore. The only time I ever really have was at a movie. And full disclosure, I was in college and took my then-girlfriend, now-wife, I guess I was trying to earn some points, so I took her to see Nicholas Sparks' The Notebook. And at one point in this movie, the theater was packed, which blew my mind to start with, but there was a woman sitting next to me, and we got to a certain point in that movie, and she was completely undone. I mean, she had latched on to both armrests and was rocking back and forth, just heaving. She could not control herself. And David's weeping is somewhat similar to that. It's, it's loud. It's full-bodied. And verse 1 and 2 further tell us about David, the problem. 19 says, It was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. These verses really set the stage for us. David is weeping, but we probably think, what's the problem with that, right? It's his son. The problem begins with David's failure to acknowledge victory. In the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, victory always, across the board, has religious connotations. The victory is always God's. Perhaps through ordinary means, just armies come together and one wins, or through miraculous means. David's troops were outnumbered that day, and yet they still won. However, if this were a series, we would have seen this coming, so to speak. Way back in 2 Samuel 7, God tells us that, or tells David that his kingdom will be established forever. And then in 2 Samuel 17, just a couple chapters before, when Absalom is really, his coup is gaining momentum, David has a spy with Absalom. And the Lord says he had defe- that the spy had defeated the good counsel of Ahithophel so that he, God, might bring harm upon Absalom. God had already decided that David was going to be the victor. Victory was never really in doubt. But David never acknowledges that there's actually been a victory in our text. When messengers come with news of the battle, David asks about not his army, What about his son? About his enemy? His enemy? The enemy of the kingdom of God? There's an additional problem we see here as well. This is not a private grief, so to speak. David goes up to the room that's above the city gate. And in that culture, the city gate is kind of the gathering spot of the town. It's where business would get done, deals were made court or trials would be held. And it's where the city would have gone to wait for the army to come back. And David goes right above that. We've already talked about how loud his grief was. It's not just a few tears, it's very loud. And so somewhat like a rumor in middle school or now I guess like the latest viral tweet, it's spread, news of David's grief has spread and it's spread very, very quickly. If they haven't heard David crying themselves, everybody 
knows about it. Verse 3 tells us the result of David's weeping. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. Instead of puffing up their chest and strutting in as the victorious soldiers that they are, our text tells us that they kind of hang their heads and try to slink back in and not be noticed. Like thieves trying not to be seen, their heads are hung in shame. For us, shame is really an internal thing, but in that culture, shame was very public and external. I mean, if we were to declare bankruptcy, we wouldn't parade that around. We would hide it from everyone until we couldn't anymore. This is the idea. The idea is of soldiers that are captured being paraded around for the victorious army to mock, for those citizens to laugh. And this is the victorious army that feels this way. These are the winners. Maybe some of you remember an Alabama judge. I don't remember exactly how long ago this was, but he sentenced Walmart shoplifters to stand out in front of Walmart with a placard on their front and back that said, I am a thief and I stole from Walmart. Their sentence was eight hours or four hours of standing in front of Walmart with that. People stared, they laughed, they mocked, they took pictures and posted them on the internet. It's a similar idea here to being publicly humiliated. That's how the victorious army of David felt. They had won, and they felt like they were being mocked. They were ashamed. As we work through our text, we get to verse 4, and it repeats almost verbatim the expression of David's grief we saw in 1833. It forces us to look at David's grief again and to come to terms with it. Why is he so torn up about Absalom? Absalom is not a good guy. He wasn't a good son. Absalom took justice into his own hands and killed his half-brother. He lived in exile for years and then estrangement from David once he got back. And Absalom stirred up a rebellion against David, against his own father. He was trying to kill David and take the throne by force. But to do this successfully at this point, Absalom was going to have to kill everybody that had a claim to the throne that would have been a threat to him. He was willing to kill brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, stepmothers, whatever it was. Anyone that stood in his way, he was willing to kill them to get to the throne. He was not a good guy, and yet that is who David weeps for. So why? I think part of the answer is that despite all of Absalom's faults and his plot to try to take over, he was still David's son. But a second aspect, an answer to to David's grief, we see come from way back in 2 Samuel in chapter 12. After David's sin with Bathsheba, God said to him through the prophet Nathan, "'The sword shall never depart from your house.'" And I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Absalom is responsible for his own sin, but David bears responsibility as well. 
Absalom's rebellion is that enemy from within David's house. As a result of David's sin with Bathsheba, up to this point, three of his children have died. As one scholar says, perhaps David wished he had died instead of Absalom because he knew that he deserved to die. As if we weren't sure of the problem at this point, Joab, Joab enters the story. And in many ways, Joab is that friend that you just never really knew what to do with. You never knew what to expect, what he was going to do next. Did we love him? Were we scared of them? I had a friend like that in high school, and his name was Ben. I never knew if I was going to get thrown in a river or have lit fireworks tossed at me with Ben. Or if he would take me out evangelizing on the street, and I would get to watch him convert somebody. Or the Lord work through him and convert somebody. And Joab's kind of like that. I mean, he's David's friend and general and advisor. But he also has a tendency to go off on his own and do whatever he wants. He kills Absalom against David's wishes. He's the one who brought Absalom back to Jerusalem on his own. And Joab hears about David's mourning, just like everybody else. You kind of don't know what we're going to get when, you, when Joab hears about David's mourning, but Joab finds David, and Joab lets David have it. You ever had a discussion with your spouse or a close friend where, yes, they're brutally honest, but they're just kind of brutal as well? That's kind of what's going on with Joab and David when Joab gets there. He's being really honest with David, but he's doing it with a point and a sharpness that David is probably not used to and probably only Joab can get away with. Joab doesn't pull any punches when he gets to David and says, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters, and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Here, Job's really just repeating what the authors told us, but he's doing a kind of a sarcastic, biting edge to it. And we know that all of David's family was there. And Absalom was out to get them too. And though most of David's family is still alive in the city with him, David weeps for the one that is dead. And Job continues his tirade in verse 6. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. And to use the cliche, Job has really taken his gloves off with David. I mean, it seems like he's harsh and maybe exaggerating a little bit. But he's not exaggerating that much when you look at the passage. The text repeatedly shows us David's cries over Absalom and not his relief that he's won, his hugs with his family that remains. And so we don't want to think about it. We want to think that David wouldn't have actually traded the lives of his army and his family for Absalom, but the text makes us look at and consider the possibility that David might have at least considered it. But why is Joab so upset with David? 
I mean, really. I mean, they still won. Joab is essentially taking David to task for the fact that he is overindulging his grief as a father and completely neglecting his duty as a king. For us, we're not the king of Israel. When someone dies, it is appropriate and right for us to grieve. And so Joab's speech is not directed at us. If our children were to pass away, it is right and proper to grieve. But David is the king of Israel, and Joab wants David to start acting like it. One time when I was in high school, think of me and take off like 30 or 40 pounds, so that's pretty skinny. And I got really sick one week, and I've lost an additional 15. So you can imagine I looked gaunt and just kind of really unhealthy and sick. And my brother, who's older than me, his really helpful advice to me, take a man pill and go back to school. And, my, and Joab is actually saying something similar to David. He's basically telling David to take a man pill, take a king pill, if you will, and start doing what he's supposed to be doing as a king. When David most needed to be playing the role of king and playing it well, he was in the room above the gate weeping. Maybe as you're following along, you're just kind of still asking, why is this such a big deal that David's crying, that he's weeping over his son? The coup was unsuccessful, right? Who cares? What's the problem? As I struggled with this text, I had to ask myself that same question. Verse 7, Joab really tells us the answer. Verse 7 says, Now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Joab's telling David to go out and thank the troops, kind of as they march back in, kind of review the victorious army. But Job's also telling us a lot more than our English text conveys to us. The Hebrew word that's translated speak kindly actually means speak to the heart. And earlier in 2 Samuel, it's used for how Absalom's rebellion gained steam. In chapter 15, twice it says, Absalom stole the hearts of Israel. And if David isn't careful... His weeping is going to lose the hearts of his most loyal supporters. And so even though he might win the battle that day, without his supporters, he still might end up losing the kingdom. So though David's side has been victorious in battle, he could still end up the big loser on the day. As we talked about a little earlier, we know what God has decreed. We know that David's not going to lose his kingdom. God's kingdom will endure because God has said it will endure, because God will preserve it. And so in verse 8, we see, 
Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. David kind of, he goes out and does his kingly duty. He goes out and sits in the gate and watches the army as they march past. He speaks to his supporters' hearts. His throne is saved. As we talked about earlier, as we first started, why is this passage really even in the Bible when it could have so easily just been skipped and we wouldn't really have missed anything from a narrative point of view? The answer is that the author and God want us to see God preserving his people and his kingdom in a way that we're not really used to. We think of God's protection or preservation, we often think of it in really kind of big, splashy ways, like God miraculously delivering Jerusalem from the Assyrian army. They wake up one morning and there are thousands of dead Assyrians at their doorstep. We think of God's deliverance like healing a loved one from cancer. But here the deliverance is really pretty mundane. Here the deliverance comes from Joab basically telling off the king. But it's God that's working in and through those words. And that's what we need to take away today, that despite all appearances... God is preserving his kingdom and his people. But the application of that is going to be very different from us, or different for us. God's kingdom is no longer the nation of Israel, and I'm pretty sure no one in here is the king of Israel. Now, God's kingdom is the church and his people throughout all nations that believe, excuse me, who believe in David's greater son, Jesus Christ for their salvation. God's kingdom now is those of us who call ourselves Christians. And we need to remember that God will preserve his kingdom and his church and his people forever. And we remember not just by trying really hard to remember. Remember, remember, remember. That doesn't really get us anywhere when you think about it. We remember by looking to the cross, to the cross of Jesus Christ, David's greater son, where he took our sins and our punishment to that cross and bore them for us. We remember by keeping Jesus and his sacrifice before us. It shows us what lengths that God will go to to preserve his people. And that preservation is going to take different forms, as we talked about. There's victory in battle. Historically, I think of the conversion of Constantine, who then legalized Christianity so they weren't martyred on a regular basis. Preservation is also in a lot more subtle ways. Preservation through hard and difficult times. We might not even know that it's God that's keeping us going. Did you notice that in our text, God's only mentioned once, And it's when Joab is basically swearing at David. But it's God that's working behind the scenes. We shouldn't be expected to be preserved just like David was. But throughout Scripture, we see a pattern 
of God preserving his people. As I was listening to Charles, I realized how much God has preserved even my family in the last month. We moved here, and one of my wife's grandmothers had a stroke. My wife's father has cancer, and then another one passed away, and the funeral was last week. God has preserved us. When we moved in, I happened along or happened to find a neighborhood party. I was trying to explain what I do with RUF to someone in really generic terms. Chaplain-ish at a college. And the guy turns to me and goes, oh, so it's kind of like RUF. (laughs) It's exactly like RUF. (laughs) He was a member at Uptown Church and lives next door to me. I'm having dinner, or we're having dinner with him tonight. That's just an example of God saying, hey, I want you here. God preserving us through a very hard time. Maybe you've been unemployed for so long, you can't even find a job at Starbucks or McDonald's because you're overqualified. But through a good friend speaking a kind word, it doesn't even mention God. You're buoyed up. You're preserved. God's preserving you through that when you need it the most. Maybe you're discouraged when you look around and see kind of the culture around us. You see all the sin and the immorality, not just being practiced, but being commended. And God preserves you through reading a passage that's similar to ours today. Maybe we're reminded of the rapid growth of Christianity in places like Africa, South America, and China. But we have to keep in mind that preservation does not always mean deliverance from. It means that God will uphold us, uphold us in the midst of those times. God's preserva- but ultimately, God's preservation is found in eternity. Jesus, David's descendant, sits on an eternal throne and only his kingdom is going to endure forever. And nothing's going to overcome that kingdom. Not a sinful culture, not secular academics, not your own personal kingdoms of money, corporate success, or the perfect family. They're all going to fade away. The U.S. and every other nation will fade. And so the question is, are you in God's kingdom? If so, if you believe on Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you are secure, not just now, but through eternity. This is the hope that we Christians have, that one day we will be secure in God's kingdom forever. So our passage today shows us that no matter the circumstances, God's promises are sure. He will preserve his people, whether openly or behind the scenes. That is good news for his people indeed. Amen.